Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Scream 2 from 1997. Written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven, and if you remember when the first Scream movie came out from my previous episode, you'll know that by Hollywood standards this was an incredibly quick turnaround. Williamson began developing his treatment for a sequel, which he actually appended to the end of his screenplay for Scream along with his ideas for Part 3, while the first film was still in theaters. Contracts were rapidly drawn up, and the second Scream began filming before the script was even finished. Which may explain why a few of the details of this film seem a little bit hastily sketched out. It doesn't help that this was one of the early movies to be affected by the burgeoning problem of internet leaks. The site Ain't It Cool News, founded just a year earlier, acted as a sort of clarion call to the studio executives of Hollywood that they were dealing with an ecosystem of gossip and rumor almost entirely outside of their control. Harry Nowells, the founder of the site, made his reputation by collating reports of test screenings of new movies so that he could post plot details and reviews before they were officially released. By 1997, virtually anyone could post anything online, and information about who the killers were in the hottest sequel in Hollywood was bound to leak. Williamson was forced to rewrite the ending, as well as circulate dummy scripts with fake endings to throw even his own production office off the trail of the real killers. Which, again, may explain why this one isn't plotted quite as tightly as the original, but we'll get to that. It was pretty much a foregone conclusion that the surviving regulars from the first movie would return, so we once again have Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, who was actually doing Party of Five while the film was shooting a grueling work schedule by any standard, David Arquette as Deputy Dewey, now married to his co-star Courtney Cox, she returns as Gail Weathers, Jamie Kennedy returns as Randy, and Liev Schreiber gets a substantially beefed up role as exonerated convict Cotton Weary. And of course, Roger L. Jackson returns as the voice of Ghostface, giving me the opportunity to correct an error I made in the episode on the first scream by noting that Tatum in fact does say, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel, so he does not go entirely unnamed. Joining the main cast this time out are Jerry O'Connell as Sidney's new boyfriend Derek and Timothy Oliphant as his friend Mickey. O'Connell got his start as a child actor in the late 80s on an early syndicated series, My Secret Identity, where he played a burgeoning teen superhero back before that became its own genre, and he went on to success with the sci-fi series Sliders, ongoing while Scream 2 was filming, before settling into a comfortable role as a character actor alongside frequent voice work. He's been both Nightwing and Captain Marvel, to name a few. Uh, Oh, and he's also in one of the Scary Movie movies, which are parodies of this series, among a number of other horror films. I don't know if he's the only actor who was in both the original series and its parody franchise, but he's gotta be right up there. Oliphant, on the other hand, had been bumping around Hollywood getting a lot of attention from casting agents, but not many actual parts when this role came up. Everyone agreed he had talent, but he'd done less than a half dozen appearances before getting cast as Mickey. Needless to say, he's done pretty well over the years, mainly in things like Deadwood, The Crazies, and Santa Clarita Diet. 
The last really major player is Elise Neal in the thankless role of supportive best friend Hallie. Neal has been a hard-working actor over the years with over a hundred credits in film and television. Frequently they've been supporting parts like this, and thankless ones at that, but if you're a fan of the Hughleys, you probably know her as Yvonne. And then we come to the tricky bit. After the success of Scream, pretty much everybody wanted to play a part in Scream 2, and Williamson and Craven used that greatly to their advantage by casting famous actors in a variety of bit parts to act as red herrings for audiences who naturally assumed that a big name would play a major character. So we get Jada Pinkett, yes, Jada freaking Pinkett, who is already doing things like Menace to Society and A Different World, as well as headlining the sadly overlooked Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight, as early victim Maureen, and Omar Epps from ER and later House as first victim Phil. We get Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy the Vampire Slayer herself as incidental victim Cece. We get Joshua Jackson, who is already famous from the Mighty Ducks movies and who would go on to work with Williamson for years in Dawson's Creek as a random guy in a film class. We get Laurie Metcalf, a.k.a. Roseanne's sister, as reporter Debbie Salt. We get Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi as sorority sisters Lois and Murphy. Admittedly, Gayhart is still a year off at this point from anchoring her own horror movie as Brenda Bates in Urban Legend, and de Rossi is still a year away from her role on Allie McBeal, but there's still people very much on their way up. And just when you thought that we couldn't get any more star-studded, we get David Warner as Sydney's drama teacher. You know who David Warner is. It's practically encoded in your DNA at this point. But if you need a single role to point the way, he's the sleazy tabloid reporter in The Omen who gets decapitated by a sheet of flying glass. And that's to say nothing of the stab movie within a movie, which features Heather Graham as Casey Becker, Tori Spelling as Sidney Prescott and as herself, and Luke Wilson as Billy. All were already well-known at the time and have gone on to dozens, if not hundreds, of other roles. The point is, there's a lot of very famous people playing relatively small parts, and it's honestly hard to fit them all in, especially because they have such famous careers. Hence the extremely abbreviated descriptions above. My apologies to any stars whose great roles I've admitted. And speaking of Stab, Scream 2 opens at a movie theater where a special preview screening of Stab is just getting underway. It's quickly evident that Stab is the film based on Gail Weathers' book, The Woodsboro Murders, which was about the killings we saw in Scream. Already we're going deeper into the metatextual concepts that were on display in the first movie. There, a pair of killers drew inspiration from horror movies, and now here, they've been turned into horror movie characters for a whole new generation of fans. Sadly, life has itself subsequently imitated art, as no less than three groups of people have attempted to use the Scream films as templates to help them get away with murder, an idea that this movie weirdly ends up presaging. Attending the screening are local college seniors Maureen and Phil. Phil is happy to see a horror movie with his girlfriend, especially for free, but Maureen genuinely doesn't like being scared and isn't exactly thrilled about the lack of black representation in films like this, which is a little bit of dialogue that feels less like it's metatextually commenting on the problems with the genre, and more like it's lampshading a very real issue with the Scream series itself. Because let's face it, the first Scream movie had exactly zero black characters with dialogue, despite being set in ethnically diverse California, and even though Scream 2 vastly ups that number, it's notable that three of the four black characters in the movie don't survive to the end. And spoilers, but two of them won't even survive the opening sequence. 
They're given complimentary Ghostface costumes, which many audience members are already wearing when they enter the auditorium, and are treated to a rowdy atmosphere full of people happy to play slasher for the night. Again, it's such a serendipitous touch that the mask they use for Ghostface is a genuine Halloween mask available from retailers everywhere. It really does make it feel like anyone could just become the killer at any time. The Scream series genuinely anticipates meme culture in that sense, with the Ghostface identity spreading virally. So instead of having to come up with ways that Billy and Stu could come back from the dead, they simply have to ask themselves why someone would adopt the mask, which is a far more interesting question to build a movie about. The opening credits of Stab roll to the tune of Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, followed by a version of the scene we've already seen in the first film, but this is a deliberately heightened, almost caricatured version, directed by Robert Rodriguez, who clearly understands that his assignment is to make an entertainingly bad version of an iconic sequence. In this take, filmed with a number of Hitchcock homages, Casey is about to take a shower in the middle of a thunderstorm when her plans are interrupted by the Ghostface Killer, and we get a much more jump-scary take on this sequence. Maureen offers sarcastic commentary on the events of the movie, but when things start getting genuinely unsettling, she goes out for popcorn to get away from it. On her way back in, her boyfriend jumps back out wearing his ghost face mask to scare her. Phil is honestly kind of a dick here, making lewd comments about the Casey character and mocking her legitimate complaints about the way black women are treated in horror. Even his offer to take her to a different movie comes off as sulky and petulant, more geared to soothe his conscience and get Marine to give in and go back inside than anything else. Which brings up one of the first places where this film is a little sloppy compared to its predecessor. In the first Scream, you could go back and watch the scene with Casey and figure out exactly how Billy and Stu pulled it off. Here, we're left with no doubt that these two were specifically targeted to send a message to Sydney. They're Maureen Evans and Phil Stevens, names that coincide with Billy's first victim Maureen and his second victim Steven. Now, it's possible that as a film student, Mickey could have arranged to get them tickets to the sneak preview. I held a few of these myself at the campus theater when I was a college student. And maybe even done a little social engineering to get them to go. Goodness knows that college students rarely turn down free entertainment. But for this plan to work, either Mickey or Debbie, yes, I know, she's not really Debbie Salt, but they don't give her real first name in the film, even though it's canonically Nancy, so I'm sticking with Debbie here. Um, spoilers. Has to have known that Phil was going to the men's room, slipped into the stall before he got there, ensured that all the urinals would be occupied, ensured that the stall next to theirs wouldn't be, all before doing the creepy mumbling that they had to hope would be interesting enough to get him to lean his ear right next to the wall so that they could then stab straight through the divider and into his head. That's a plan with a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong, not the least of which is that the knife might not even have penetrated. Those dividers are thicker and tougher than they look. Oh, and they're also lucky in that nobody sees any of this before they can steal Phil's jacket and head back to his seat. It's a kill that feels a lot more implausible in its drama, unlike the deaths in the first, which managed to walk a narrow tightrope between being cinematic and entirely grounded in the real world. But luckily for Mickey or Debbie, it all works perfectly. The urinals are occupied, and there's only one free stall, next to which someone is mumbling, Please don't, Mommy, I'll tell you why I did it. 
until Phil leans right up to listen, at which point they stab him in the side of the head. He collapses, the killer takes his jacket, and goes back to join Maureen in the theater. She, meanwhile, is deeply invested in the film, shouting advice to Casey, and I know this is intended to play into stereotypes about black urban audiences talking back to the movies instead of watching them in respectful silence, and in that sense I am kind of uncomfortable with it, but Jaya Pinkett really plays the scene with such sincerity that you can really believe she's just so deeply invested in the movie that she's forgotten it is a movie. It's kind of sweet, and I feel like this is the kind of crowd noise I'm never going to be bothered by. Talking on your phone during the movie is rude. Yelling watch out to a fictional character? That is a compliment to the filmmakers. Maureen realizes something is wrong when she grabs Phil's arm and feels blood on her fingers, and she has just enough time to look down and see it on her hand before he stabs her right in the gut. She staggers away, her face contorted with pain, but everyone in the audience thinks it's fake. They're all assuming this is a publicity stunt. Some of them even start cheering for the killer to stab her again, even as she climbs up to the front of the auditorium and looks at them with desperate pleading in her eyes and the most singularly horrifying howl of agony I've ever heard from an actor on film. It's only when she collapses that the mood of frivolity ebbs away to reveal shock and genuine sympathy. This whole scene is, I mean, I had some problems with the way we got there, but this is just about one of the most perfect moments in the whole franchise. It's a commentary on the way we consume horror as audiences, with a whole room full of people cheering on the bloody and violent death of a woman who's clearly in grave terror and pain. It's a commentary on racialized violence. Maureen is literally dying in front of all these white people, and they don't take her seriously until it's too late. And it's just also a gruesome, emotionally affecting way to die. You can see it written all over Jada Pinkett's face in her last moments. The question, why won't any of you help me? clearly the last thing running through her mind. This is genuinely sad and moving, and I can't say enough good things about the way Pinkett and Craven know exactly how to wring every last bit of tension out of the events. And also, everyone stops cheering when they realize it's real. That's Craven's subtle rejoinder to every moral majority type who hated one of his movies. The people in the audience only enjoy fictional horror, because they know that nobody actually gets hurt. After the opening title card, we join Sydney, who's waking up to the sound of a ringing phone. It's another anonymous caller, speaking with the voice of Ghostface and asking her what her favorite scary movie is. When she asks who the caller is, he says, you tell me. And reaching for her caller ID, she does exactly that. Here's where we first see both the challenge screen 2 is set for itself and one of the ways it meets that challenge. After the first film, everyone is expecting to see subversion of the classic tropes of the slasher movie, and it's up to the sequel not just to twist the expectations that the genre sets for the audience, but also the expectations that the first Scream set for them. Williamson can't just coast on his previous triumph, he has to give us something we aren't ready for, even after seeing his whole bag of tricks from last time. The prank caller, Corey Gillis, who should totally be the killer in Scream 5, hangs up, and Sydney's roommate Hallie asks if they need to change numbers again. When Sydney says no, Hallie turns on the TV, which is showing an interview with newly exonerated Cotton Weary. He's still having some problems with people who suspect he must have done something wrong, or otherwise he wouldn't have been in prison. Honestly, they do a lot of very interesting stuff with Cotton in this movie, especially as their initial plans for him had to be changed after script leaks. 
As originally written, he was going to try to kill Sidney for revenge, but instead he's just an ordinary guy. Certainly not a saint, as we'll see, but also not cartoonishly vengeful and evil. It's some remarkably smart and subtle characterization. Hallie does a little freelance mothering of Sydney, and I'll save fans of black representation some time and effort by saying that you will pretty much get her entire character from this scene. She is Sydney's supportive black friend, part of a cadre of similar roles in the 90s that were apparently issued to white female protagonists as soon as they attracted the attention of a masked killer. Rachel True from the movie The Craft joked in the documentary Horror Noir that half her work in this decade was trying to find new ways to say, are you okay? To her white co-star, and it's never more true than here. I'd bet good money that Rachel True's name appeared on the casting list for this part. Sydney's just about to get into the shower when another student runs up and tells them to check the news, and sure enough, it's full of the murder of Maureen and Phil. Sydney immediately has a bad feeling about the situation, and she goes to find Randy in his film theory class, only to be greeted by a cadre of reporters as soon as she leaves her dorm. She snakes past them and gets away. In said film class, the students are arguing over whether the stab movies can be held responsible for the death of Phil and Maureen. The teacher, Mickey, and Pacey from Dawson's Creek are taking the position that they can, while Randy and Buffy the Vampire Slayer are against the idea. Okay, fine. She is Cece in this film, and Joshua Jackson goes unnamed. She'll always be Buffy to me, though. The discussion degenerates into an argument over whether there are any good movie sequels, which is kind of weirdly tacky given that some of the people in this class supposedly knew Maureen, and Randy at least, lived through a previous killing spree exactly like this one, and not in the we-have-inappropriate-and-messed-up-coping-mechanisms way of the first movie. It feels a lot more like Williamson thought the film needed some explicit meta-commentary on sequels, and tried to fit in speeches on the topic anywhere he could, even though it doesn't quite work in the same way that it did in the original. This is a trend that's going to follow us through to part three, sadly. I will say that it's very easy to believe just from this scene alone that Randy would make friends with Mickey. Uh, Timothy Oliphant is working very hard to replicate Jamie Kennedy's twitchy, off-brand Tarantino vibe here, and you can easily see the two of them bonding over long arguments about movies that last until 4am. Sydney shows up as class lets out, and she tries to talk to Randy about the murders, but he's in a little bit of denial. He puts on a weird cockney accent to tell her that people get murdered at movies all the time. Which, no, they don't. Also, Kennedy himself doesn't know why he did those two lines like that. They're joined by Derek, Sydney's boyfriend, and it's clear that Randy still hasn't gotten over his crush on Sydney or his habit of hating everyone she dates. This is one of the more intriguing themes in the movie. Unlike the first screen, where entitlement was the exclusive province of the murderess, here we see a lot of quote-unquote normal people who nonetheless feel entitled to Sydney's time and attention, and they're all men. Some are grosser than others, but Williamson is clearly trying to make a point that Sydney's case is no different from any other woman, just more extreme. One has to wonder if he wasn't already noticing the behavior of his bosses, the Weinsteins, by this point. The three of them head over to a press conference being held by the local chief of police, played by David Arquette's father, Lewis, where Gail Weathers is getting ready to report on the situation. She's excited about what a new round of murders is going to do for her book sales, and it's clear that her added fame hasn't done her any favors. She's become even more cynical and narcissistic, even though she's lost none of her professional touch. 
She gets a rude awakening, though, when reporter Debbie Salt asks her some questions about her role in the situation and realizes that this time she's on the other side of the equation thanks to her involvement in the Woodsboro murders. She's not just a reporter, she's also the story. And unsurprisingly, she doesn't like being treated the way she's been treating others all this time. Presumably, by the way, Debbie really did take Gail's seminar in Chicago the previous year. Maybe she was workshopping the Debbie Salt character there, where the stakes were a little lower if she was discovered, and testing her new lookout to see if Gail would recognize her. Certainly we know that she's been planning this in pretty meticulous detail for the last two years, so that wouldn't be out of the question. And it does give Gail a bit of a cover for why she didn't make the jump from this woman looks familiar to oh shit, this is actually the mother of the notorious serial killer that I personally shot in the chest and who may in fact have a bit of a grudge against me. You might think she would have interviewed Mrs. Loomis for one of the two books on the Woodsboro murders, but she probably didn't want to be found by that point. Gail manages to reassert herself and wrest control of the press conference away from the chief of police with a barrage of questions, and Sydney and her friends eavesdrop until they're interrupted by a pack of Delta Lambdas who are there to offer syrupy mock sympathy. They're interested in getting Sydney to pledge, and Hallie is willing to encourage them to the point of forcing Sydney to attend a mixer that evening, because Hallie is pledging Delta Lambda in hopes that having a famous friend might increase her chances. Okay, when I said they were all men, they are mostly men. This is as close to a character arc as Hallie gets, and spoilers, it goes entirely unresolved. Which is a shame because there's a commentary to be had there on the unexamined racial segregation in the Greek system, but the film is two hours long already and there's not a lot of room for subplots. Although in the dream universe I live in, where Lois and Murphy were the killers, and the whole sorority thing was a trap to lure Sydney to her death, it might have been more relevant. Sorry, I really shouldn't mix my analysis and my fanfic. Although, while we're on the topic, why are there two killers in this movie? In the first film, it was a clever way of distracting attention from Billy and Stu by giving them an alibi each for at least one of the murders, but honestly here, Williamson doesn't even make a token effort at establishing anyone's whereabouts for any of the killings. He relies on the sheer profusion of suspects to keep us guessing. And it works. Debbie is hidden in plain sight for most of the movie as a woman so vanilla we wouldn't even suspect her of littering. Lori Metcalf really sells herself as an uninteresting nebbish, and I mean that in a genuinely complimentary way. There's not really any need for it beyond the audience expectation that Ghostface is always a double act, and I feel like that's one of the places where this film genuinely sags a little compared to its predecessor. Only a little, though. As they leave, Sidney spots Dewey, who flew in as soon as he heard about the murders to volunteer his services with the local police. He's got a limp now thanks to a severed nerve where Billy stabbed him, but he cares deeply about Sidney and wants to do anything he can to help. I like the fact that Williamson never explicitly says that Dewey is working through his survivor's guilt and grief over his sister's death by becoming overprotective to Sidney, but you can nonetheless see it in every single one of his actions. He warns Sidney that if someone is targeting her, they probably already insinuated themselves into her life. But she says she already knows that, and she's trying very hard not to think about what it says about her new friends. A brief chronology note, even though these movies came out one year apart, Scream 2 is actually set about two years after the first. It makes sense if they've had time to publish a book and make a film about the killings. Sydney returns to her friends and is ambushed by Gail, but the reporter isn't here to ask her about the deaths of Phil and Maureen. 
she's actually there to ambush her with a surprise appearance from Cotton Weary, the man Sidney wrongly identified as her mom's murderer, and to ask her how she feels about seeing the man she thought killed her mom. Sidney unsurprisingly backhands Gail again and storms off. Cotton and Gail's cameraman Joel are both astonished that she would actually try to do something like that as an ambush interview rather than formally arranging a talk. Gail storms off only to bump into Dewey, who is, shall we say, incensed over being depicted as a country bumpkin from the book on the Woodsboro murders. Sample line, Deputy Dewey oozed with inexperience. He really thought he made a genuine emotional connection with her, and he's hurt that she used him as grist for the mill. And not in an entitled way, either, but in a genuinely sweet and dignified way that David Arquette plays with real integrity. Dewey is this franchise's cinnamon bun, and I don't care who knows it. Certainly one of the people who knows it is Gail, and after initially trying to play it off as just business, she gives him a genuine apology that nonetheless doesn't soothe his hurt feelings. Now if you'll excuse me, he says, walking away, I have some oozing to do. God, he's so awesome in this movie. That evening at the mixer, Hallie does more of her I'm concerned about you Sydney shtick, while Lois and Murphy show up and Portia de Rossi delivers one of the best lines in the movie that I unfortunately don't think I'll be able to convey nearly as well as she does. Hi! No, I really mean that. Hi. It is such a perfect parody of mock sincerity that I really wanted these two to be the killers just because they're giving the most interesting performances of the whole film, and I wanted them to have a lot more screen time. And clearly that is the intent. There's so many shots that end on the two of them exchanging glances, or giving a line, or just doing something really interesting because Craven knows that by lingering on them that way, he's going to create suspicion. And they are perfect red herrings, even though, again, I want them to have the whole movie to themselves. Meanwhile, over at Omega Beta Zeta next door, Cece is playing the role of sober sister for anyone who needs a ride home meaning she's all alone while her friends are out partying. Oh, there's a friend keeping her company on the phone, talking about Party of Five as it happens, which means that every time Sydney's not being recognized as the survivor of the Woodsboro murders, she's being mistaken for Nev Campbell. But by 1997, everyone had call waiting. She gets a call from a stranger just like Casey Becker did, someone trying to be playful and flirtatious to keep her on the line. Unlike Casey, though, Cece has very little patience for it, which means we get to the death threats a lot quicker. Cece hears noises from upstairs and realizes she's not alone in the house. She tries to call campus security and flee the building at the same time, but she's got a cordless phone and not a cellular, and those need to be near the receiver to work. So she has to go back in if she wants to get help. Fortunately, the person inside the house turns out to be another Omega who was slow getting ready for the party. Unfortunately, while Cece is distracted talking to her, Ghostface slips inside through the open door. The other sister leaves, and Cece is alone with the killer. There's a brief, tense chase, but in the end, Cece is stabbed in the back and thrown from the upper balcony to her death. I'll admit, it's never going to stop being odd to me that she doesn't just use her super strength to beat him up. Back at the mixer, Mickey and Randy continue their argument over good sequels. Mickey raises Empire Strikes Back as a sequel that was better than the original, which Randy shoots down as part of a planned trilogy, and I disagree with literally everything about that exchange, but this isn't a Star Wars podcast, so I won't get into that particular rant. 
But I can say that according to the actual Lucasfilm archives, George Lucas did not plan a trilogy, and in fact a lot of key plot points were still unfixed while Empire was being written, including the identity of Luke's sister, who was originally going to be a third character and not Leia. Lucas didn't have a grand overarching plan for nine movies or twelve movies or however many movies he said it was in interviews. He didn't even know what the Clone Wars were until well after the original trilogy was filmed. He just had some ideas, and those ideas changed and evolved because that's how the creative process works. Okay, maybe I'll get into that particular rant a little. But it is relevant to the Scream series, because this was Kevin Williamson's way of letting the audience know he already had the third movie lined up in his head. And as we'll see when we cover Scream 3, that idea had to change and evolve so much over such a short period of time that Williamson didn't even end up writing the next movie. Just as Sidney sits down with Derek, who, along with Mickey, has been conspicuously absent up till now, the police show up at Omega Beta Zeta to investigate the disturbance and find Cece dead. Debbie Salt is first on the scene, which maybe makes Gail a little envious, and she asks Dewey, who rode along with the cops, or presumably rode along with the cops, if he thinks it's all happening again. But he's still cold to her, assuming that she's actually rooting for the murders to give her another 15 minutes of fame, and she takes it out on Joel, who is having serious second thoughts about being Gail's cameraman at this point. He was assigned to her from the local news to do an interview with Cotton Weary, not to investigate a series of gruesome murders. Joel isn't really remarked upon much by fans of the series, which is fair because he's a minor character, but he does kind of set the template for the next decade for black characters in horror films, all of whom are acutely aware of the survival rate of people with their particular skin color, and decide to avoid their fate by not being around for the rest of the movie. Derek decides to take Sydney home, but when she goes back into the Delta Lambda house to get her jacket, the phone starts ringing. And I love the way that, even though it's not her place, even though she has every reason by now to absolutely dread the sound of a ringing telephone, there's nonetheless this subtle and insistent social pressure not to leave the person on the other end of the line hanging. It's almost presaging modern telephone etiquette, where everyone texts all the time, but nobody calls unless it's very bad and very important news. Or unless you're my dad, who leaves messages saying, I need you to give us a call as soon as possible, and then asks me, who played Kramer on Seinfeld? But I digress. Sydney picks up, and it's Ghostface. He's in the house, and unlike Billy, he's not setting up some kind of grand scheme to kill her on the anniversary of her mom's death. He just wants to murder her right then and there. Sydney manages to get away out the back, though, and runs into Derek, who couldn't get in through the locked front door and was looking for another way to find her. He goes in to confront Ghostface, which, spoilers, is very normal teenage stupidity, and Dewey, arriving only moments later, goes inside to find him nursing a nasty slash wound on his arm and the killer nowhere to be seen. At the hospital, it turns out that the wound missed every major nerve and artery, which raises Sidney and Dewey's suspicions along with those of the audience. After the previous movie, we're all used to the idea that the killers would be perfectly willing to injure themselves just to establish an alibi, and Williamson uses that as a dodge to keep us guessing. Except that he didn't, but we'll get to that, I promise. Derek, in turn, is suspicious of Dewey, who showed up just as the killer vanished. Again, this is something I think that the original made more of. Dewey doesn't even bother giving his alibi for the deaths of Maureen and Phil, which is presumably pretty solid because he didn't leave Woodsboro until after they were dead. 
That doesn't rule him out as a suspect because the first movie established the idea of tandem killers, but it would have been a little more interesting if everyone in the film was aware of how much Billy and Stu had changed the game. The next day, Gail hears that Cece's real name was Casey and pieces together that Maureen Evans, Phil Stevens, and Casey Cooper all have names that correspond to the original victims of Billy and Stu's murders. Realizing that someone is trying to copy Woodsboro, the police assign two detectives to watch Sydney, which makes it a little bit difficult for Sydney to get enough privacy to talk to her boyfriend about their relationship. She wants him to keep his distance from her until all this is over, ostensibly out of concern for his safety. But when Derek asks her point-blank if she trusts him, she conspicuously doesn't answer. Which is his cue for a big, grand romantic gesture. At the student union, he decides to replicate a scene from Top Gun by publicly serenading Sydney, although he chooses I Think I Love You as his song, which is ironic given that there's a line in there that says, if you say, hey, go away, I will, and she did, and he doesn't, before giving her a necklace with his fraternity letters, which she feels obliged to accept because there's a whole audience of people who just saw him being very publicly romantic and who don't know about all of the other things going on in Sydney's life at the moment. That's a common phenomenon in real life as well. Guys will make big, showy proposals at public events like baseball games in no small part because it's much harder for a woman to say no when she's being pressured by the presence of a big audience of people who are expecting her to respond to such a grand romantic gesture and don't want her to turn down such a clearly wonderful and romantic guy. Even though the whole performance is all about making the guy the center of attention and not about the woman's feelings at all. Basically, although this isn't a relationship advice podcast, I'd still tell dudes, don't do this. This is entitled behavior. Show your love by being supportive, not being big and showy. And also, if your girlfriend's last boyfriend was inspired by cinema to kill her, maybe don't copy your big romantic gestures from the movies. Oh, and hey, look at that. Another supposedly nice, normal, non-monstrous guy who nonetheless feels entitled to Sydney's time and attentions even though she's given clear and unambiguous signals about what she wants. Once is happenstance, twice is a coincidence, three times is a theme, right? Anyway, two last things before we move on. One, we're explicitly told that at this college, and maybe every college, I was never a part of the Greek system and don't know a thing about it, Giving your fraternity letters to your girlfriend earns you a ritual hazing as punishment, so Derek is setting himself up for trouble later. And two, this is probably one of Wes Craven's cleverest bits of directing, because it's shot entirely differently from the rest of the film. He uses a lot of high angles and wide shots, replicating the way directors traditionally shoot the end of romantic comedies. So even though we're not up to the midpoint of the movie yet, and even though Derek is explicitly and overtly trampling on Sydney's feelings to try to manipulate his way into her company, subconsciously we're responding to the way this is filmed and seeing it as the guy gets the girl at the end, aw, isn't that sweet? It's really slick. Meanwhile, Randy and Dewey are talking about the case at a local restaurant, where a TV in the background is talking about the new movie Stab. As Sydney predicted, she's being played by Tori Spelling. Actually, this is a really clever bit because it shows a clip from Stab that conveniently recaps the salient plot details about Billy's mom leaving town. But because we're all busy giggling over Luke Wilson and Tori Spelling doing their deliberately over-the-top renditions of Billy and Sydney, we don't notice that we're being fed important exposition. Nice touch. 
Randy gives a speech about the rules of sequels, and this is another one of those moments where the meta-horror talk becomes a little bit clumsy compared to the original. Randy's rules of horror speech fit organically into the conversation because it was at a party where people were watching and discussing horror movies. Here, it feels just a bit too much like someone said to Kevin Williamson, We need a speech just like that, but about sequels. It's telling that Dewey cuts him off mid-sentence. And look, as long as we're being honest, this whole scene is a little bit pointless. It's not bad, because Jamie Kennedy and David Arquette are both punching up the material as much as possible, and that's always fun, but it's really just a recounting of some of the potential suspects Derek, Mickey, Hallie, Randy, Dewey, Gale that doesn't do anything but remind us that the killer could be anybody. If you lost this whole bit, nobody would really notice its exclusion from the film. Speaking of scenes that are fun but not actually necessary, Joel finally reads Gail's book and is now even more skittish about sticking around, because if the killer is replicating Woodsboro, then he's got to be a potential target. Gail's efforts to calm his fears are not the best. He wasn't gutted, I just made that up for the book. His throat was slashed. But she manages to keep him on board a little while longer. Fun scene, acted really well by Cox and Dwayne Martin, but again, you could relegate it to the deleted scenes feature. And this movie is over two hours, just by a minute or so, but it is a half hour over that 90 minute mark that's kind of the sweet spot for horror features. It could have been tightened. And Sydney tries to drop out of the school play, only to be told by her drama teacher that she should just use this terror and dread over the killer stalking her to inform her performance as Cassandra in Agamemnon instead of dropping out. Because, you know, he doesn't have an understudy and he needs her. Oh look, now it's a theme. She goes up on stage, and this time the on-the-nose meta-horror feels right. She's delivering lines like, Fate's vengeful eye is fixed on me, and the Greek chorus costumed with masks and knives reply, What stays fate's hand from striking now at thee? And then Ghostface infiltrates the troupe of actors, making her desperate flight less choreographed and more real. It's hugely over the top, don't get me wrong, but in the immortal words of Joel Schumacher, nobody ever paid to see under the top. Derek arrives just as she's taking a break to compose herself after Ghostface seemingly disappears again and may well have been a figment of her imagination, although, you know, totally wasn't. And she does what a lot of women do in private after they accept those big showy public proposals. She dumps him. He takes it pretty well, all things considered, but still, he literally would have been alive today if he hadn't decided to be grand and romantic instead of listening to his girlfriend and accepting her feelings as valid. Gail and Joel meet up with Dewey and Randy, and they all brainstorm possible suspects. Joel bails for Dunkin' Donuts when they start speculating about whether the killers will go after him, but their conversation is interrupted by a call on Gail's cell phone that Randy answers. It's Ghostface. I love the way that this inverts the terror of the previous movie. Instead of someone trapped on the phone while a mobile killer taunts them, here we have a hidden killer taunting from a secret location and luring Randy closer while the others desperately search for him in hopes of finding the killer. It also works with the growing prevalence of cellular technology in that era. As they look for someone with a phone, they start to realize that it's impossible to pin down just one person anymore. And as they split up and spread out, Randy decides to get under the killer's skin by taunting their decision to impersonate a loser like Billy. There is some homophobic language here, but I feel like it makes sense in the context of deliberate and conscious provocation. 
He gets cut off mid-rant, though, and Ghostface pops out of Gale's news van and drags him inside, then closes the door and stabs him to death. It's probably the biggest shock of the whole film, possibly even the whole franchise. We were really getting used to seeing Sidney, Gale, Dewey, and Randy as an integral group from the first movie, and it's surprising to see one of them not making it to the end. I mean, in retrospect, yeah, Randy is a very limited, one-note character. No offense to Williamson or Kennedy, I don't think he was ever intended to be a nuanced protagonist. He's the comic relief. And he is the most disposable of the four. It's still surprising, though, that he was killed because he's so popular. And it's also surprising because of the way he was killed. One of the running themes of this movie, along with male entitlement, is the twist on the previous movie's idea of people who are in a horror movie and know it. In the first Scream, the protagonists broke the rules of the genre to save their lives when it was clear that doing the expected would kill them. Here, people do the same thing. Maureen and Phil were in a crowd, Cece called the cops right away, Randy was out in broad daylight in a public place, Hallie was with two police officers until they got killed, and then she got killed. Um, spoilers. And it doesn't save them at all. It's another way that the franchise keeps upping its game and raising the stakes, giving us exactly what we don't expect, even after getting a whole movie to learn the new rules of horror. In that light, this death was absolutely necessary, and it's honestly one of the major reasons why the Scream series feels like it has such a great pedigree. Sydney's over at the library when all this happens, doing research, when she gets a message from someone at another terminal saying, you're going to die tonight followed almost immediately by, the cops can't save you. Now admittedly, it's a pretty big library, but this seems like a wild risk for Mickey to take, or Debbie, but we know from later dialogue that it was her in the van with Randy while this was going on. The terminals are visible to anyone sitting next to him or walking by, and the message might very well be traceable by somebody with computer knowledge, to say nothing of the fact that the cops might just decide to seal the building and take in literally everyone for questioning. Honestly, this scene makes a lot more sense if you assume that it was someone else deciding to prank Sidney. Maybe Corey Gillis laying the groundwork for his future plans in the fifth installment. I kid, but there are a lot of people who pretend to be famous serial killers for the rush of power it gives them. Just ask the uh, newspapers during the Jack the Ripper killings. While the cops are distracted looking around for the killer, Cotton Weary sneaks up to talk to Sidney. He's still looking for a joint appearance on national television and the big payoff it'll bring, but he's ditching Gail Weathers for Diane Sawyer, and he needs Sidney to come on board. And if you want to talk about themes of male entitlement, oh boy. Liev Schreiber plays this whole scene with a menacing intensity that makes me nervous just watching it, constantly looming in over Nev Campbell and touching her without permission and holding back this explosion of rage. He's not a killer, he's not a monster, he's a guy who wants something from Sydney and doesn't like taking no for an answer, and that's the scariest thing of all. When he lets out that rage by shouting at her in the middle of the public library, the cops arrest him. But he's got the best defense in the world. He's not a killer, and he didn't do it. And for all that I loathed him in the previous scene, it's hard not to feel sympathy for him here when he's confronted by angry police who suspect him precisely because he was a suspect before, even though he was framed for those crimes and fully exonerated. It's why I do think that Cotton is one of the most complicated and interesting characters in the whole series, because he's capable of evoking that whole range of emotions. You can see why he's angry at Sidney, but you can also hate him for the way he handles his anger. 
The police release Cotton and make plans to move Sydney, who's unfortunately just heard about Randy's death right there in the police station, to a secure location. They're also locking down the campus, which I will spoil now by telling you is the least effective lockdown in the history of ever. Gail's cameraman quits, and she gets harassed by Debbie Salt in exactly the same way she's harassed dozens of other people over the years. And man, the line, must be scary knowing somebody's out there waiting, watching, enjoying all this, hits differently on repeat viewings. Really, all of Mrs. Loomis's dialogue winds up very taunting in hindsight, much like Billy's in the first movie. It's basically the moment where Gail hits rock bottom, and she tells Dewey to forget the story, forget the cameras, forget the fame. She just wants to stop the murders. The two of them head for the film school building to go over Joel's tapes in hopes of spotting the killer in the crowd. And speaking of cool but probably unnecessary scenes, this entire sequence with Dewey and Gail feels just a little bit long. Sure, it's got some good scares. It's a nice touch when they start watching the crowd footage on one monitor, only to see another screen light up with footage of the killings being filmed surreptitiously. And the chase through the recording studio is pretty harrowing, especially when Dewey gets stabbed. Again. And of course, Courtney Cox and David Arquette have great chemistry together. It's fun to watch them. But this is a two-hour movie, as I mentioned, and I feel like they could have trimmed some stuff, and ultimately this doesn't contribute to the plot, it's just a bunch of scares. It also creates some logistical problems. Not only does the killer fairly blatantly teleport at one point, he's up in the projection booth, but when Dewey goes up to look for him, he's suddenly down behind the lectern, but we've only got two killers. Mickey is presumably the one going after Sydney in the car, um, spoilers, which means this has to be Debbie which means that Debbie must run outside directly after stabbing Dewey so she can be on the phone when Gail arrives. Fair enough, although she's lucky Cotton doesn't see her, when he shows up and tries to help Dewey, getting blood all over his hands in the process, he is not a lucky man. But then who starts up the music in the auditorium later? Can't be Debbie because she's with Gail, can't be Mickey because he's chasing Sydney. Again, it's not that these are huge issues, it's just that they're issues that the previous film didn't have. Sydney heads off to her secure location. Hallie goes with her. Derek gets grabbed by his frat bros and dragged off to the drama department, where he's mock-tortured for giving his Greek letters to Sydney and left tied to the deus ex machina up in the rafters for the night. Not metaphorical deus ex machina, literal deus ex machina. There is a machine where Zeus is lowered in the production. But while Sydney is on her way, Ghostface shows up and murders the driver before hijacking the police car with Sydney and Hallie still inside it. The second police officer jumps onto the hood in an attempt to stop him, and Ghostface's attempt to shake him off ends with the car crashing into some road construction. The cop winds up with a steel pipe through his head, probably the gnarliest kill of the whole series, right down to the twitching. Bodies twitching as they die is probably right up there on my list of, ooh, that's gonna make me cringe. And Ghostface is knocked out by the collision. Sydney and Hallie can't open the rear doors because it's a police car, and they don't open from the inside. But the pipe has damaged the grating between front and back, and Sydney's able to peel it away and climb into the passenger seat. But with the passenger door jammed, she has to climb directly over Ghostface, knowing he could wake at any moment. It's a taut, gripping sequence, made even more tense by the fact that Hallie has to do the same thing immediately afterward. They get away, but Sydney decides she's through running. She goes back to unmask the killer and find out who's tormenting her. 
but he's already gone. Behind Hallie, as it turns out. He stabs her to death, and Sydney runs for it. And at this point, we should probably pause to discuss the intended ending, because this is roughly the point where things diverge from the original draft. There's actually some controversy over whether the original draft leaked, or just some pages, and exactly what was in it at what point. Williamson says there was a whole second draft that was leaked on purpose to throw people off the scent, but this was contradicted by Craven, who says that the leaked draft at least had the general thrust of events correct as intended. But basically it seems like the original version had Derek and Hallie as the two killers, with Mrs. Loomis providing them with support from behind the scenes. Mickey was the one trussed up for giving his letters to Hallie in this version, the two of them were dating, and a little bit of that remains. You can see that they've kind of got a little bit of chemistry together, but it's not formal. And Sydney was alone in the police car when it crashed. This script ended with Cotton deciding to take impromptu revenge on Sydney after Mrs. Loomis's death, figuring he could always blame it on the mess of killers involved, and getting badly wounded by Sydney in the struggle. The ambiguous ending would leave both of them bleeding out from their injuries. Now, there were also intentional leaks. I saw one where Dewey's stabbing was revealed to be a Billy-style fake-out, and he was in on it with Derek. But it's pretty clear that the original intent, according to just about everyone concerned, was to have Derek and Hallie as the two killers. And I'm kind of glad the leaks forced them to go in a different direction, because it makes almost everyone a more interesting character. Derek is more interesting when he's just a stupid, entitled college kid whose brain hasn't finished growing in yet. And Sydney's more interesting when she turns out to be wrong in her suspicions. Mickey is way more interesting as the murderer than as the dude who hangs out with them until he gets killed, and Timothy Oliphant steps up to the plate for this one in a big way. And Cotton is much more interesting as an ordinary guy who hates Sydney for real believable reasons and responds in real believable ways. And Hallie... okay, no. Hallie gets much less interesting. Sorry, Elise Needle. I hope this role at least got you a good paycheck. Gail flees the film school building, bumping into a blood-soaked Cotton on the way out. She finds Debbie outside and warns her that Cotton is the killer. She also calls the police, and yet the police don't really seem to get to anywhere meaningful in any good length of time. Maybe that's more believable than I want to think. Sydney, meanwhile, hears someone in the drama department. Again, I have no idea who, given everyone's position on campus at this point and goes inside looking for help, but the frat brothers have already gone home. The building is empty save for a trussed-up Derek, who lowers down from the ceiling in an entirely ironic subversion of what a deus ex machina is supposed to do. She begins to untie him, but then Ghostface shows up and reveals himself to be... Bum, 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 Derek's best friend, Mickey! He insinuates that Derek's been in on it all along, and that they planned it together a la Billy and Stu but that their plans were disrupted by Derek's kidnapping at the hands of his frat brothers. Derek protests his innocence, but Sidney is convinced, right up until Mickey shoots Derek through the chest with the cop's stolen gun, killing him and adding an extra digit to Sidney's therapy bills. Mickey reveals his plan. He wants to get caught, so that he can claim he was negatively influenced by violent horror movies as a kind of performance art statement. He plans to put the Republicans up on the stand and force them to exonerate him by defending their theories that violent movies cause violence. Which is a cute bit, but I'm glad they didn't push too hard, because I think it would have been very easy for it to overextend its welcome. He says that, like Billy, he loves the theatrical, and Sydney gets one of her better lines in the series. You're forgetting one thing about Billy Loomis. I fucking killed him. 
Then she smacks him with the Greek letters Derek gives her because he told her they'd keep her safe, see? Mind you, I really don't understand how a charm the size of my fingernail whips Mickey's head around like that, but still, great moment. She knocks the gun out of his hand while he's distracted, and the two of them struggle. He gets the gun back, though, and reveals his partner in crime. And Gail Weathers walks out onto the stage. Followed moments later by Debbie Salt holding her at gunpoint. Or as Sydney recognizes her despite the weight loss and cosmetic surgery, Mrs. Loomis, Billy's mom. She found Mickey on a dark web-esque message board for serial killers and gave him everything he needed to set up shop at Sydney's college. But her plan always involved setting him up as the patsy for the crime, so she blows him away and shoots Gail when Gail tries to flee, sending her collapsing into the orchestra pit. Debbie and Sydney exchange a series of taut insults, with Debbie blaming Sydney's mom for everything, because the real villain in this series, along with male entitlement, is slut-shaming, and Sydney pointing out that nobody made her abandon Billy, before distracting her by claiming Mickey's gotten up. That gives Sydney the chance to get away and set off all the stagecraft and special effects, finally burying Mrs. Loomis under a pile of fake bricks. Debbie loses the gun, but retains her knife, and they have one last final battle, which is interrupted by the arrival of Cotton, who has showed up with no idea of what's going on, but who did find the other gun. Debbie holds Sydney at knife point and tries to negotiate with Cotton, reminding him of all the things that Sydney did to him. But when Sidney agrees to do Diane Sawyer, he instead shoots Debbie in the chest, although the scene is staged in such a way to leave a moment's doubt as to who he killed. Sidney gets up and takes the gun away from him. He's more than a little freaked out, almost punch drunk on residual adrenaline, and not at all used to killing people. I love the way Liam Schreiber plays this. He's just like, huh? Oh, yeah, gun, sure. Oh, God. (laughs) They're just beginning to discuss the situation when Gail climbs out of the orchestra pit. Turns out the bullet glanced off her rib. Gail takes the other gun, and the two of them look down at Debbie's corpse, just waiting for the inevitable last scare. And Mickey leaps to his feet and charges, because Scream 2 is all about the double twist. Gail and Sidney gun him down together before putting a bullet in Mrs. Loomis's skull. Just in case. As the sun rises, Joel rejoins Gail, ready to help her report on the latest scoop, but she discovers that Dewey survived his stabbing and decides to ride with him in the ambulance instead. Because, aww. Sydney's mobbed by reporters again, but she tells them that Cotton Weary is the real hero, an innocent man who saved the life of the woman who put him behind bars. Cotton's happy to take the spotlight she doesn't want, solving both their problems. But as she walks away, we see her from a high crane shot that feels ominously like she's still being watched. Like it's not over. Like for Sidney Prescott, it is never going to be over. And will I hang on to this movie? For sure. Scream is one of those movies that makes you almost immediately want to watch Scream 2, and I would feel like I had a hole on my shelf if I only kept the original. It's a rare sequel that stands the test of time, and watching it only makes me look forward to the rest of the series that much more. And if you want to talk about good sequels, bad sequels, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at @halfhorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as at @halfpricehorror. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. 
and next time on Half Price Horror? Well, we've been doing a lot of screaming around here, and you can probably guess that there's more to come before January rolls around and gives us that fifth installment. I thought we might take a little break and get some peace and quiet, so let's go back to 2018 and pay a little visit to a quiet place. See you then.